0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. In this episode, recorded at the Park Street Library at the Lyric on September 21st, 2022 to a full house, two of our Connecticut history game changer honorees discuss their work. The conversation was hosted by Jasmine Augusto, community outreach coordinator for the Hartford History Center at the Hartford Public Library. But before we go to our new episode, I need to ask our listeners for their thoughts. We need your thoughts and ideas about the podcast that highlight our 20 Connecticut history game changers in the field of Connecticut history. This five minute survey will help us plan episodes that you wanna hear. As a thank you, we'll send you a free introductory copy of our print magazine, or if you're already a subscriber, we'll add a free issue to your existing subscription. I hope you will share your thoughts on the podcast by going to the show notes for this episode and clicking the link to take the survey. Thank you. So what can we learn about Hartford's Puerto Rican community today through art and history? Photographer and Trinity College Fine Arts Professor Pablo Delano and emerging scholar and public historian PhD candidate, Elena Rosario, explore their work in the context of Hartford's Puerto Rican history and the broader United States-Puerto Rico relationship. Now let's join their conversation.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Jasmine Agosto. I'm the Education and Community Outreach Manager for the Hartford History Center at Hartford Public Library. And it is our pleasure, our delight to host this evening. Um, we're going to get started with two short presentations by Pablo and Elena, and then get into our conversation. We're going to start with Pablo. So for those that don't know, Pablo Delano is a visual artist, photographer, and educator born and raised in Puerto Rico, bracing us with his presence in Hartford in 1996, right? All right. He is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Fine Arts at Trinity College in Hartford, and his work has been shown in solo exhibitions at museums and galleries of the U.S., Europe, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Zalano is recognized for his use of Connecticut and Puerto Rican history in his work, including his 2020 book of photography, Hartford Scene, which was a Connecticut Book Award 2021 finalist. Over the course of 20 years, Delano amassed a substantial archive related to a century of Puerto Rican history. Using this material, including 3D objects, newspaper clippings, and photographs, he created the Museum of the Old Colony, a dynamic, site-specific art installation that examines the complex and fraught history of U.S. colonialism, paternalism, and exploitation in Puerto Rico. Without further ado, welcome Pablo.
2: You're looking at a page from the Hartford Current from August 30th, 2022. Um, it's an article written by somebody from the New York Times News Service, first published in the New York Times and also reprinted in the Hartford Current. It's an article about uh, the growing call for colonial reparations, colonial countries demanding that the injustices they suffered because of colonial oppression be addressed by their colonial oppressors. Interesting article, I read it from beginning to end, and I read about British colonialism, and Spanish colonialism, and Portuguese colonialism, and Dutch colonialism, and all the, all the countries who have, uh, who have uh, held colonies, most of which are free. Guess which colonial uh, country was not mentioned? And guess which colony was not mentioned? Right. right. So, um, fast forward to today. Uh, on the left, you can see a chat that I exchanged just this morning with a very dear friend of mine. And on the right, you can see a picture that was sent to me yesterday by another friend who is a, a cab driver. And this is her, her cab on the lower right, the, the, white, um, the white roof showing just above the water. Right? So she completely lost her livelihood. This is in Caguas. The text, uh, I could translate roughly like this. I asked my friend how he was doing, and he said, Good morning. I went to do the shopping at Torre, which is a part of San Juan, uh, completely without electricity, no hospitals without electricity, and the hurricane didn't even really do any serious damage in San Juan. Uh, the corruption here is scary. To which I replied, Oh, but I've heard in the news that the Luma, the electric company, is assuring everybody that uh, in, in, a, in a few days um, everything's going to be fine, so everything's cool, right? And he replied, oh, um, that's so far from the truth, we're, very, we're in a very bad state. And I replied, obviously, um, they lie with no shame. And he replied, it's terrible the way we allow this to happen, right? So... That is an interesting thought because I read his comment as a call to action. And as an artist, I felt a call to action to address this colonial situation, to address the situation of the oldest colony in the world. So I created a conceptual piece of art called the Museum of the Old Colony. It's not a museum, uh, it's an art installation. But it's an art installation that mimics the museum in, in certain ways, uh, inspired in part by this drink, which I'm sure some of you grew, drank as children. And you can still buy it, Old Colony, and incredibly ironic that this is a soft drink that's still sold in the oldest colony. It's called Old Colony, right there. It is. Um, this is a project that's grown and grown, and I'm not going to talk to you much about this right now because the idea is we're going to just introduce our work briefly and. Um, then have a conversation. But I'll give you some idea of the kinds of things I've done since arriving in Hartford. So this started out as a small idea, of kind of conceptual project that re- repurposed and appropriated historical uh, images and objects and it grew into a really huge project that now takes up, a, this is about a 3,000 square foot gallery in the last iteration uh, what it has to do with Hartford is that we did a we did a kind of portable version of it on a banner, which was originally shown in Brooklyn and Brooklyn Bridge Park, but then we brought it to Hartford and it was shown in Pope Park and and also Colt Park here, which you can see. So it it uses and recycles and uh, historical photographs, objects, text, original, un, 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 uh, unaltered in any way, and. Um, uh, I, I'm starting kind of with my current project because this is an ongoing project uh, and it's in de- still in development even though it's been shown in a number of museums and galleries throughout the country. So I've always been interested in the role that the arts and music could play in bringing people together and uh, I've had kind of my own artwork that I do that has always reflected my interest but I've also tried to engage the community and the culture of Puerto Rico in all different kinds of ways for example uh, way back in the uh, in the late 90s there was a festival in a uh, uh, music festival and i think this was in the in the recreational center in in, the, in Pope Park and the instrument that the man is playing is called a tiple which i'm guessing many of you have never heard of but you've heard of the cuatro right the cuatro is the the instrument w- that most people know the tiple is almost is almost uh, almost vanished. However, um, I uh, I have a wonderful friend that some of you may know, William Cumpiano, who was committed to actually resuscitating, bringing this instrument back to life. So for two years at Trinity, we ran this workshop where people from the community could take this free workshop and actually learn how to build a tiple. William, the luthier, Cumpiano, was a is an extraordinary educator as well and figured out a way that these instruments could be built in a way that reflected the traditional way of building them. But uh, when you're done with the workshop, you actually have an instrument that's out there in the world that you can learn how to play. This was a collaboration with Center Church um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful. I think Chris was Chris was there, right? Chris was very helpful. After the second one, I think I wrote uh, this article in, for the Central Journal about the role that this kind of workshop could play in terms of pedagogy and cultural uh, and activating people to embrace their cultural heritage. Meanwhile, um, I'm driving up and down driving all around Hartford and I see stuff and I want to photograph it so um, I couldn't help myself. Uh, <laughs> I started photographing uh, all the things that I found visually exciting and things that evoked this rich history of the city to me and the flow and ebb and flow of people and the way and the places where I saw the Caribbean reflected in, 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 in the city. So that kind of became an obsession, and I did it for a number of years, which resulted in uh, exhibition at the Hartford Public Library, at the Connecticut Historical Society of these, of these images, and finally, the publication of this book. Uh, so that's my little summary.
1: Thank you, Alan. Um, so for those that don't know, Elena Rosario, she's Harford's own. Um, she's an emerging scholar and public historian, educated at Connecticut College, and currently a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan. Her scholarly interest in histories of migration, identity formation, and labor emerged early and stems directly from her family's history. As her University of Michigan bi- biography states in fifth grade, Elena's work in U.S. history won her the Outstanding Award from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Starting in middle school, Elena began to question why Puerto Rican history was largely missing from the United States history curriculum. She is writing her dissertation about Puerto Rican migration and settlement to Connecticut beginning after World War II and ending in the mid-1970s. So let's welcome Elena.
3: I begin. I would like to thank a few people and organizations that have made this event possible. Thanks to Connecticut Explored for this incredible recognition, and thank you, Dr. Hermes, for your warm welcome. Thanks to the Hartford History Center and the Hartford Public Library for hosting all of us this evening. Thank you to the Park Street Library branch manager, Graciela Rivera, if you're here in the back. <laughs> And uh, thank you for introductions and moderating and putting this all together, Jasmine Augusta. And thank you, Pablo, for that wonderful presentation and for the conversation that we're going to have today. And thank you for the thank yous. <laughs> As uh, we already said, my name is Elena Maria Rosario, and I'm a public historian from Hartford, Connecticut. I'm going to speak a little uh, briefly about my work to provide some context, but I'm really looking forward to the conversation. The image that you see in front of you is uh, on the cover, on the front and back cover, cover of Pablo Delano's book, Hartford Scene. This image was taken in 2010. The image shows two churches, and on the um, right, you can see one of the churches, the one with the white and green writing, and it says, Iglesia de Dios Pentecostal Teslónica. The sign on the church, which is really small in the second window there, reads, Reverend Arturo Madera. He's been the pastor at that church on Broad Street for 35 years. He's been ordained as a Pentecostal pastor for the last 40 years. Reverend Madera presented me in front of God when I was an infant. He also happens to be my maternal uncle. I wanted to start with this image because uh, Pablo and I had a lot to talk about when I found this image on his website, Um, but also because it just highlights how deep and how deeply rooted my scholarship is in my identity as a Puerto Rican woman of the Hartford Diaspora. My project could not be possible without the many communities that have supported me, many of which are here today, and my family that always valued education and my interest in history. My dissertation project, currently titled, Puerto Rican Tobacco Migration, Post-War Settlement and Community Development in Hartford, Connecticut, 1947 to 1973, intervenes in historical inter- interpretations of Connecticut and American history by working within the community to document and curate material through oral histories, local archival research, and publicly engaged projects. This is a table from a book uh, called Sponsored Migration that came out in 2017. And as you can see, right on the top of this is Connecticut. Um, And I wanted to show you all this because uh, for those of you that are not from Hartford or not from Connecticut, uh, it's very easy to see the history of Puerto Ricans in Connecticut as a very recent thing. Um, People can kind of point to specific moments when we had a Puerto Rican mayor, or when you have Puerto Rican migration that came after Hurricane Maria. But as you can see in this map uh, here, as early as 1955, and I actually argue as early as 1952, Puerto Ricans were already coming to Connecticut in significant numbers. My research examines the development of the early Puerto Rican community in Hartford to uncover the silences in the region's history and speak to the lack of Puerto Rican stories in the archives and secondary history curriculum. As of 2019, Connecticut has the most significant percentage of Puerto Rican residents of any US state, at 8.5%. The city of Hartford has about 100,000 Puerto Ricans, many of which are in this room. And our stories and our contributions to the city continue to remain unexamined. Through education, I learned that silences are not simply in the archive, but also in the way that we preserve, collect, and distribute materials for education. So my project uses a range of methods, research methods like archival research, oral histories, curriculum design, and community-centered research. And here you have some pictures. Um, on the, the picture on the right is me with Jasmine and uh, Ray, which is a, he's a student at Trinity College here in Hartford. And I was showing him what is available at the Hartford History Center in the archives. Um, as part of a community project that we were, that I helped consult on at Trinity College last summer. Uh, the other I- image on the screen is a screenshot of a video uh, from StoryCorps Mobile Tour, and I'm interviewing my mother um, about her experience migrating to Connecticut. Um, and Sacred Heart Church, for those Puerto Ricans in the room, has a lot of meaning. And my mom, uh, that's where she had her first communion, so we were talking about that in that in that screenshot. So one of my primary goals uh, is to make sure that historical material is, is available to the public and to non-academics, um, and that is because I wanted to be able to narrate the social and cultural impact that Puerto Ricans have uh, on, have made on Harvard, And so part of that work is also, part of that public work is writing curriculum. So for those of you who know, uh, who may not know, in 2019, the state of Connecticut passed uh, Connecticut Public Act 1912, titled The Inclusion of Black and Latino Studies in Public School Curriculum. Uh, it's being implemented currently right now for the uh, for the first time after a pilot year. Um, And for those of us who grew up in Connecticut public schools and didn't get to see ourselves in the curriculum, this is a very exciting project. Um, And I've been really uh, blessed with the honor of being asked to help write curriculum for this project. Um, And so abiding by the Connecticut Elementary and Social Studies frameworks, um, I wrote four lesson plans for Connecticut Humanities. Uh, They have a digital resource called teachitconnecticut.org which is available online for teachers and families and anyone who wants uh, to learn about Connecticut-specific history. Um, And so I'm just highlighting two of my lesson plans. One was on the uh, post-World War War II migration and the other one was on the first Puerto Rican Day Parade. Um, And part of what the goals for for this uh, curriculum design and for all of my research is to really make sure that it is both culturally informed it uh, centers the public audience, and it highlights local resources and the work that the communities have already done. So thank you very much, and I look forward to the conversation. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org.
0: Hey, listeners, we want to hear from you. Connecticut Explored, the magazine behind Grading the Nutmeg, announced its 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series, highlighting 20 game changers whose work is advancing the study, interpretation, and dissemination of Connecticut history. The initiative is funded by Connecticut Humanities and sponsored by Trinity College. Please share your thoughts with us by taking the survey for today's episode. Find it in the show notes.
3: Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast.
1: Uh, i back. He's coming to sit down. Graciela, can you can put the light on in the back um, to the front, that way they can see us a little bit better. So I want to just um, start with a really a question to y'all about How do you personally come to this work? We know that, right? Y'all are doing this work that's that's gonna be really impactful and is already impactful in Connecticut, in Hartford, uh, and beyond. But like, you know, how does you your personal journey, um, you know, where you come from, bring meaning to your work? So, whoever wants to
2: start. Well, that's a very easy question because, and I can give you a very short answer. I just thought that I really didn't have any choice. That's the answer. I, I why? Know. Like, why didn't you have a choice? <laughs> because where I come from and, and uh, my, my upbringing and, and, and those, you know, uh, everything that I was surrounded with, you know, as a child and growing up, uh, made a profound, profound impact uh, in me and on me, and uh, affected the way I think and who I am and my whole way of thinking and my way of thinking about myself, my way of thinking about others, and um, and uh, and it's always been present in my work. But perhaps the one thing that is different is that uh, is is at uh, about in about six or seven years ago. Um, I found a new way and a more direct way to address this situ- the, the question of Puerto Rico. And honestly, what it had to do with was with uh, the, the creation of the PROMESA law, which was a, which was a uh, for those, some of you who may not know, but uh, in uh, 2016, I think it was, uh, President Obama signed a, a, a law that imposed a fiscal control board on the island that basically stripped away any premise of self-government because all economic decisions had to be, made uh, and approved uh, by this federally appointed board, not by locally elected officials. This was in response to a so-called debt crisis, which you might say is a result of an onerous debt or an illegitimate debt, which was created by a whole history of colonialism. Uh, In any case, that kind of was a kind of breaking point, and I felt that I needed to address these issues head-on and directly and call them out. Uh, and so that was sort of the beginning of the project that's called the Museum of the Old Colony, which then has many iterations, including the banner in Hartford. Previously, I spent about ten years photographing in Trinidad in the West Indies, and that was uh, groundbreaking and very, very important for me because I got to see what it, what it looked like to be a post-colonial, in a post-colonial world, right? to, to, to have been a colony, and to have achieved independence, and then to try to 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 to, to be uh, uh, totally engrossed, involved in the struggle of trying to define yourself as a new nation. Maybe that answers. Okay, and that speaks to a lot of the
1: framing of our conversations, tonight in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more. Can How do you come to this work, you know, personally, your personal journey?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I, I always liked learning and uh, reading and teaching and, um, or I guess you could say I was nosy and asked a lot of questions all the time. Um, so I think it was kind of a given that I was going to go into a field that was going to ask inquiry some way or another. I think in the beginning, uh, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer because um, I also like to talk and debate and other things. Um, but my love for learning really and teaching really came early um, and along with my love for learning and teaching, I realized that there was a lack in my education. And I really struggled uh, with kind of trying to figure out how was it that I grew up in the North End you know and so how was it and you know I also spent a lot of time here on Park Street you know, how was it that I saw all this cultural expression and beautiful, you know, flags and churches and all these community events that were being put on um, by Puerto Ricans, but I never, like, learned about that in school or I never realized, like, no one ever talked about Puerto Ricans as having any history besides it being negative in the city. Um, And so for me, I really started by asking questions to my family, you know, about our history and our past and and learning more about that. Um, and what really, and I would say when I started college I thought I had everything in my head and I knew, I was like, I'm going to be a historian, um, but I had a professor tell me that I only wanted to be a, a teacher because that's what all uh, Spanish girls want to do, and um, that really really hit home for me and being a first-generation college student. And so I I took my questions about colonialism and belonging, and I tried to make it more legitimate for academia. So I ended up studying uh, British colonialism for a long time. I wrote an undergrad thesis on that. Eventually, you might read an article about it. They're trying to make me write an article. Um, I went to to University of Michigan thinking I was going to write about the British Atlantic world And uh, then Hurricane Maria happened, and I was also going through a lot of other things, and it was just a big realization that, you know, no one should tell you, one, tell you what you should study, but also that if no one else was gonna tell this story, you know, I need to tell this story, and also who better to tell this story than someone from the community that cares about that story? Um, And so I said, forget that man. Well, there was other more colorful words if you know me. But there's children in the audience, um, and that's how I came back to this project, and I think that's why it means uh, so much, um, because a lot of us, even those of us who go through education, we're still getting pushed down, you know, on the way up, and that's why this is so important, both in regular public history, but also in the academic world of history, um,
1: more broadly. Thank you so much for those in the room. Um, you know, even if you're not a but where did you learn the most about who you were, like who you were, your identity? Um, the, the reason why I ask is because you know there's images outside as well that speak to this, right? Where like so much of who we learn about is in the home or in our own communities and our in our own neighborhoods more than like in the classroom. And I think that's that that's like there's a long history of that that speaks to that and here we are as like scholars trying to really push this work in, in academics, and in education, and in, in the school system so that everybody um, can learn about who they are, right, and feel connected to this greater history. Um, I just wanted to point out that this is out of, if, if others feel that way too. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, as both of you guys mentioned kind of this push that happens, right, you guys, have a connection to the island of Puerto Rico in different ways, um, are doing work on right in US, um, and you guys will, will speak to these important moments, Promesa, Hurricane Maria, and these kind of pushing you further to do the work that you want to do, um, and, and, and tackle things head on. So can you speak to um, how the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico really frames all of our study, our lived experience, our story sharing of Puerto Rican, of Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico's Puerto Ricans on and off the island. How does this relationship frame our work? Um, okay, <laughs>
3: that's a big question. Um, well, obviously, I mean to first start off, uh, and one of the biggest things that I uh, talk about, and in the introduction, you talk about the Daughters of American Revolution, which um, is a very politicized organization. I won't spend too much time talking about them, but I will say that I have always found it ironic that they gave a fifth-grade Puerto Rican girl an award in Outstanding American History uh, as someone who could never actually join the organization because I don't have any family members. They go back to the Mayflower, so I can't actually join that organization. But it's like supposed to be an honor that they recognize me, um, which is like super complicated. And so I want to mention that because I think that that is a perfect example, is an example of the way that American history has a very one story, a one narrative of what American history is. Um, And when you're talking about American history in the in the twentieth century. So anytime after you know 1900, you're talking about America as a colonial power. You're talking about America as a exclusionary state, America as a, a place that is creating world policies on immigration, on labor. Um, and that is really, really important. but it's a lot easier to just say, okay, this is American history. It's the Civil War, it's Mark Twain, it's, it's very, you know, that's a very easy narrative. And what's a lot harder is to actually take the history that we know and add new perspectives into that. And that is what's really important about understanding the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico because it shapes everything, regardless of, uh, what, regardless of the fact that it was in 1917 that the Jones Act passed, or in 1952 that the ELA passed. All of those laws are deeply, they all, they're passed through generations. So even though I wasn't there when, 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 the, when Americans occupied Puerto Rico and took it from Spain, that is in my history. That is our story. And so we cannot just put that, what a lot of times American historians like to do is place Puerto Rican history with Latin American history. Which is fine, because it is a part of that history, but to completely omit it from American history is to, is to literally lie and pretend that, the Ameri- that America is not a colonial power, and we know that it is, and we know that it is, is still today. Um, and so I'll just stop there, but the main thing, and Pablo already mentioned this, but it is just important to remember that not only is Puerto Rico the oldest colony in the world, but America. <laughs> Is, is who, is, who is, is the occupier of that colony, and we need to address that. Um, but America doesn't want to address that. So that's why our curriculums are written in a certain way, where we have a melting pot, where we all come here and we all take away the hyphen and we just become American.
2: So, in response to your question, two words come to mind. One is erasure, and one is genocide. I was just thinking about this horrible thing that's just happened, right? Five years after Hurricane Maria. Again, again, right? And so you're you're thinking thinking of, okay, so surely this, surely there's going to be these giant airplanes filled with supplies taking off every five minutes, right? There's going to be this massive effort, and and they're going to be bringing helicopters to get to the, to the to the places in the mountains where all the roads were washed out and they're gonna no, no there's no big airplanes taking off full of full of supplies nothing no nothing nothing there's no and and think of the event the political card that biden could, could play by saying oh you know well, Trump didn't do anything but we're not even that right so it's just erasure everywhere everywhere you look at it is erasure right and I don't know how many of you have seen the new video, the Bad Bunny's new video, right? But it's important, this is a really important video. It's, it's like, because what's happening in Puerta de Tierra is happening all across the island. Uh, it's it's, um, it's uh, uh, outsiders taking advantage of tax laws to come in and buy up properties, people getting evicted, not being able to find a place to live, people who lived in, in places for 20, 30, 40 years, their whole lives in these little apart- apartments, suddenly they you know, the, the, they, they have to they have to be, they're being kicked out because they, they, they pay $400 rent. And after they leave, the place is gonna be Airbnb and it's gonna be $150 a night, right, on and on and on. So I'm not sure if I, but I'm just, you know, cont- this is, Now this is today. This is today. This is now. And 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 erasure, right? Erasure, like because is the direction that this is going in is to make it impossible for people from Puerto Rico to stay there, assimilate, get out. I don't know if you guys
1: can see. I'll I'll just mention this quickly in a change shift, but um, you know, one thing that that I have seen and. just with following a lot of independent groups, artists, activist groups, mutual aid groups, Um, even just talking to everyday people that are trying to survive, right, is that the U.S. is not coming, the companies like MUMA and companies like that that are getting a lot of money, billions of dollars from the U.S. are not actually doing the job that they're supposed to be doing, and so Puerto Ricans themselves are having to have that self-determination, right, that they're, Folks, everyday folks are trying to help each other out through mutual aid, um, support, through actually shoveling the wreckage, um, you know water collection systems, their own generator system, all these other things to be able to survive and combat the fact that U.S. not coming for them, right? Um, and for our folks, um, and I, I want us to shift that conversation to about kind of the our self determination resistance work um, in even being public historians and doing photography and, doing, and and being able to share our own stories. So if we can kind of shift the story to the, the conversation to talk about y'all's work as self-determination work and you know what is the process and practice of photography of seeking visual material in the Archive or creating it literally because it doesn't exist, right? Um, how it's how it's critical to locate, create, and share
2: stories of Puerto Ricans. So, as you mentioned and I talked about, I, I have a project called the Museum of the Old Colony. Right, this is a project in which which utilizes photography, but not one single photograph in this project is a photograph I took or I made. I, I appropriate historical photographs and. Um, I do that for, they're, they're, they're based, The project can be read in two, in two ways. The, the photographs in this project are very difficult. they're really quite horrible. They're, they're photographs they're, they're, they're photographs that were taken by the colonizer when the colonizer arrived in order to sell the, coloni- the colonial experience, the colonial experiment, to others in North America and The colonizer brought all the (coughs) problematic attitudes, all the racism that was here, there, and applied it there, and applied it through visual means. So some of these photographs are very tough to look at. They're hurtful. At the same time, it's important to see them. So it's important for people in Puerto Rico to see the way that the colonizer depicted us, right? And it's a call, it's shocking, it's an awakening, and I think and I hope it's a call to action. At the same time, this project has been exhibited quite a lot in the mainland United States. The project is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Juan, which by the way, I'm very pleased and happy to say, has opened since Hurricane Fiona, not to show the art, but to let people come in and charge their phones. I mean, it's an amazing institution. They've set up uh, computers and and phone banks and places for people to come and, you know, uh, uh, know, get access to internet and whatnot. Um, The other side of the coin, though, is that it's important for Americans to see the way that their country uh, portrayed us. Because um, Americans need to come to terms with this as well.
3: Yeah, so um, I think... Kind of what we're talking about, um, and one thing that I have really um, learned, I would say, from you know oral histories or interviewing people or just my own lived experience, um, in terms of resistance. Um, so I, I actually like study resistance. So I study you know the civil rights movement and like actual social movements. So I could give you a very you know academic version of that, um, but the way that I think about resistance in or self-determination in the way that I think about my work um, is just the daily, the daily act of resisting um, the you know, discipline of history. As <laughs> um, I love history, that's my discipline. <laughs> I have you know, multiple degrees in it. Um, but it is a very deeply flawed uh, discipline that has, uh, has often favored certain voices over others. Um, and as a institu- as an institutional discipline, it also, you know, it's not as progressive as some other academic institutions. And so one of the resistance that I do is actually being a historian. Um, and so, you know, when I was applying to graduate school, I had a lot of different graduate programs I could do. I could do American culture or American studies. I could do anthropology. I could do political science. I could do history. I could do sociology. Um, and I was, or I could do ethnic studies, and I was really intentional about doing history, and that was because I didn't have a Puerto Rican historian in my um, college, and I wanted to talk about Puerto Rican history, and so I had to talk to everybody else about Puerto Rican history, except for someone in the history department. And so I wanted to be that person, that, that historian that could talk about Puerto Ricans to, the, to my students, right? Um, And like I have already said, I wanted to be someone that can say, this discipline, this time period in American history is not just black and white, it's not just white people or it's not just rich people, it's not just one version of the story. Um, And that's kind of, so that's kind of the resistance that I have. But the the other thing I want to mention is also this quiet resistance, which is, that, and and that's what I would like to call, that's the community resistance, and that's really what I see all the time, right? And so in my work, like, my work is just highlighting the history that's already been here for 50, 60 years. I just wanna make sure that we take, we collect those stories before those people pass away, because we've already lost so many people that were important in those stories. And so, but the work is ongoing, right? So the next the next book, you know, I'm just gonna have, once I finish in 73, I gotta start in 74, and then the next project continues, right? And then you gotta talk about the 70s and the 80s, which was a crazy, you know, a huge time for Puerto Ricans in the cities, and then the 90s, right? And then we'll, we'll come all the way back up to today and talk about the work that Jasmine's been doing, right? And so, and that's part of the project, right? But you have to start the project where the story started and so that's the resistance that I really do is, is by starting the story with the working class, with the tobacco migration and with that early that early group um, to really tell a full story of how we all got here.
2: I, and I would just add that it's a very important that you do this work because we're facing erasure. And if you don't do it, it's not gonna if we don't do it, it's not gonna get done. Right? It's a very important work. And um, that was my next question. Is
1: like whose story is important, right? And that's and so you got right to it, right? It's not just the all the professional Ricans who made it and all of that, right? But just everyday folks. Um, and so I think that both of y'all's work speaks to that too. Is like the everyday businesses, the everyday folks um, that we can connect to. Um, so thank you for that work. Um, Last question, and I want to open up, to because I think we're actually going to have to, a little bit of time for audience questions. Okay, so, um, is there such thing as a Hartford Regan? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, what does that um, identity mean in comparison to the Lugia Regan, for example? Is there, like, North End versus South End? kind of situation, what is the general generational legacy of Puerto Rican identity and livelihood in in Harvard? So I know that's kind of like a bigger question, but I just want to put that out there. I'm sure people in the room can also speak to this. So is there like a specific harford yeah, experience or identity?
3: So... So yeah, so every, uh, most of y'all have heard of New Yorkeran. It has like it's has its own kind of term, um, and we have an expert in New Yorkeran over here yeah. to make her speak. But if we really want to get into it, um, but I I would I so I personally say that I am a Puerto Rican from the Hartford diaspora. Um, I think Hartford Rican is a, is an interesting term that we can use, and I think if people want to use that term. And yeah, we can go ahead and make it an academic term. I personally don't think that I want to create the term. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of work when you create a term in academia, right? You have to have all the theories and everything behind it. Um, in terms of a way to categorize people, yeah, there are, you know, Puerto Ricans at Hartford, we are different than Puerto Ricans in Waterbury. We're different than Puerto Ricans in New Haven. Uh, you know, we're different than Puerto Ricans in Bridgeport, right? Um, and I think what this question, kind of talks about and it's something that I I really try to emphasize in my work is that when we say Puerto Rican what at least when I say Puerto Rican community, I mean multiple communities, right? It's not the Puerto Rican community is not a monolithic thing. So that's also why I'm hesitant to say Hartford Puerto Rican because we're not one thing, right? So I'm a Hartford Puerto Rican from the North End, but my experience is not the same as a Hartford Puerto Rican from the South End, right? Just like my, you know, when my mom first came here, she moved, you know, off of Main Street in that kind of early set, that early group of Puerto Rican migrants, whereas by the time my dad got here, he moved to Zion Street, right? Over here, The, the, the South, you know, some of those other Puerto Ricans, that's where they ended up uh, living, and so, and like that's where, you know, they they ended up living, and I think I was born around, I think we were living over there. Um, but anyways, the point is to say is that um, I start on the North End with that community because that is where, you know, the tobacco buses actually picked up tobacco workers. That's where, um, that's, you know, how you get straight into, you kind of go straight from, you know, up up Main Street and you go all the way into Windsor, the Windsor Line. Um, and so that's why that particular area is really like a center of my story. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Puerto Rican population that started in the South End is not, you know, is not the same. And the more and more I do oral histories, the more I realize that those communities were actually starting at the same time. Um, and a lot of it was just one Puerto Rican moving to the street, right? So, like, one Puerto Rican decided to go to Garden Street, and then everyone else moved, <laughs> moved to Garden Street. Um, and so that's how you, that's how those communities started happening. So, yes, there are hard for Puerto Ricans. I don't know if Hartford-Rican is a term, maybe in this room we could come up with a term that we feel that identifies us. Um, But I don't think it has gotten to the point where it's its own collective identity to the point of what New York Rican is. It's not to say that we can't get there. I do think that it's just we're a younger community and we just haven't had those conversations yet. So it hasn't, we haven't created that space, but maybe Pablo, maybe we're doing that right now,
2: so. So I, I really can't add much to that, Sorry. but but I would just a couple of observations. It is interesting that t- to um, to note that um, that uh, there are some geographic areas in the island that are more, much more heavily represented here than 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 others. Like there are several businesses that have the name Comerio. There's Comerio Market. There's Comerio Restaurant, which is closed, and that takes me to the other point, which is that. That it's interesting to put this in the context of the history of Hartford as a as a city that's always been a, a, a place through which people move. I mean, look at the history of the North End, you know, which was so so solidly Jewish. And, and now all that's left are these synagogues which are being used and are still places of spiritual worship, but they're not no longer Jewish. Interestingly. The places, the people who are using them now as places of worship have not felt any need to take off the Hebrew writing and <laughs> all. So, I mean, that, that's a kind of beautiful thing, I think. Uh, you know, But also, um, uh, you may have noticed in the video, in my little video that I showed in, in Mercado, there was a restaurant called Cuchilandia. That was a very busy uh, Puerto Rican restaurant, which is no longer there. It's been replaced by a Dominican restaurant. So... It's, uh, I think that's, you know, This. this things are just in this constant flux that are part of the equation.
3: Yeah, um, I just want to add that, yeah, I think it is important, and that's another reason why I, like, the Hartford Regan as a, you know, it's not a monolithic group, because when you act, when you do the research, you know, early Puerto Ricans were coming from you know, Comerillo, Calle, Caguas, people were coming from all over and a lot of those remains we still see that, right? So there's like, uh, you know, you Calle tires, there's all these different places and places like uh, in Bridgeport there's like a Taino barbecue you know, um, and so all over Connecticut you have those those remnants of you know, not only, so it's like we're also Puerto Ricans and we're coming from all over the island as well Um, and so that gets that kind of, all of that mingles in and creates events here, and one of the things that I'll just mention is there was a video playing outside here, um, and it was a, it was a showing an event at Sacred Heart Church, uh, Comerillos Ascentes, and it was an event that was part, it was a festival that was from Comerillo, and they the Hartford Puerto Ricans at the time, they brought that festival to Hartford to represent the community of Comerillo, and that is, was very common. Um, then that was something that was very common that happened, um, and you know when we get Puerto Rican parades in Hartford now, you'll still see people with their flags from their individual towns, um, even and the Puerto Rican flag as well. So, so it's hard to you know create that because like, yeah, it's complex. But
2: <laughs> the levels of complexity are pretty <laughs> are pretty deep. There's yeah, levels and levels. For example, I was thinking of uh, the, not far from here, on hillside avenue. There's a place called El Moro. El Moro supermarket and they have good food you know they have food uh, but and people are very proud of El Moro right? the old Spanish fortress in Viejo San Juan uh, but at the same time El Moro is a symbol of Spanish colonialism <laughs> and, uh, but also it's th- that store is owned by Dominicans now <laughs> so uh, it's not a critique it's just saying it's you know that's the way it is and shout out to Aki Miguel who brought food tonight
1: hey, Original Tina Hill is on Alvin Avenue, it's still there, and we have our Tina right here on Park Street, so that also shows that North and Southland connection. <laughs> um, so we have, yes, we have a little bit of time, so definitely open up to questions in the audience. Yes.
2: You both spoke on erasure and resilience, and both on work in representation and education. Do you feel as though our language, which is Puerto Rican's version of Spanish, has been questioned for the nation and the country, should be also represented in our schools and teach European Spanish? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: That's a great question. I was just talking to someone about this, uh, someone who is like, I would say, one of the best educators ever, our local educators, uh, Edna Negron, some of you know her. Um, and I was just talking to her about this, and uh, yes, I think, and part of why the work, the curriculum that I do, is culturally informed and relevant. Um, and so I didn't mention this, but part of when when Connecticut Humanities asked me to write this curriculum, I told them that I would do it if they would translate it, um, which some, which was not something that they had did with any of their curriculum. And I told them that I didn't want to translate it, but I would find someone, too, and I found a Puerto Rican translator to translate it. Um, And so there are Spanish versions of these. Um, But that was really important to me, right? Because it's not, I wanted to make sure that ESL students also know this important history. This content is still important, even if you're not, uh, even if English is not your first language. that is something very small, right? Um, yes, I do think, and I think all teaching and all education should be culturally informed, and that's, you know, that's just part of my value in pedagogy. Um, but this has been an issue, and in the, archi- in the history, this is an issue. So Puerto Ricans in the 50s talk about how when they go to court in Hartford that the people translating are you know Argentinians or um, people, from pe- academics from Yale are translating for Puerto Ricans and Hartford in the core and they're not it's not linking up. And so this has been an issue um, and I think the only way that we can really change it is that it's really by educators um, and also families and communities advocating for that and saying you know in this community we need you should be including vocabulary from the language that is around and not. Telling kids that's wrong, which is like what happened to me when I said a word in class and was told that's not the right word. Instead, it should say, "Well, that's one word, one version of the word. Here's another version. How can we speak together?"
2: I really appreciate the question because it also brings up another question, which is the issue of Spanglish, <laughs> right? I mean, and 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 I mean, you answered the question really. So I'm not going to go. I'm not going to. Uh, talk a lot about this, but it seems to me like uh, um, Spangli- the, the cultural contributions of Spanglish should be recognized and also uh, and also, a, a piece of work like Pedro Pietri's Puerto Rican obituary should be taught in every high school, mm-hmm. not just here, not, in every high school in this country. That's, that's, that piece of, that's a very important piece of work that needs to be taught to everybody in this country.
0: Thank you to our guests. Please don't forget to go to our show notes to take a five minute survey on this episode. Let us know what you think. You will find the link to Professor Delano's work and the Hartford History Center in the show notes too. This is Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. We'll see you next time on Grading the Nutmeg.